All that cage match buildup and nothing to show for it. Goldman Sachs is in a rut just as its partnership with Apple is taking off. And have we been overplaying the impact of social media algorithms all this time? All that and more coming up right after this. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Welcome to Big Technology Podcast Friday edition where we break down the news in our traditional cool-headed and nuanced format. We have a number of very interesting stories that we plan to go deep on this week and we're so glad you're here with us. Speaking of which, returning from his vacation here with us today is Ranjan Roy. Ranjan, welcome back. It is great to be back. I'm uh, excited to talk. Let's get to the cage match soon because I have been waiting probably three weeks to talk about this. So fresh off the plane from Taiwan, he wants to talk about the cage match. We're going to talk about your reflections on Taiwan at the very end of this show. But first, let's talk about the cage match. So it turns out that this thing is now likely not going to happen at all. Elon Musk has been playing some games. Zuck basically said he's not serious and is now saying, I'm going to move on. Uh, Ranjan, you said you've been wanting to speak about this for a while. Um, I think most people are talked out on the cage match. Why are you still eager to discuss it? I am eager to discuss it because if you remember, and if listeners remember, over the last few months, every time we do bring it up, I definitely have to shake my head and say, I don't want to talk about it. We shouldn't be talking about it. The reason I'm now ready to talk about it is we are all getting to see another beautiful cycle of Elon Musk. Everyone is a part of it now. Mark Zuckerberg is a part of it. Walter Isaacson, which we'll get to in his new book, is a part of it. This whole idea of, and we've talked about it a lot, you know, is Elon Musk just trying to take test out different messaging and then run with the ones that he knows will stick? And clearly everyone got hyped up around this cage match. But I think what we're starting to see is, him releasing private message, text messages with Mark Zuckerberg, Walter Isaacson sharing them, then Elon Musk tweeting about, you know, self-driving, leading a self-driving horde of cars to Mark Zuckerberg's front door. I mean, we are definitely, we've escalated and moved past the point of fun to discomfort, I think, for everyone. And that's actually my favorite part to watch of this whole cycle because right. I, this is always where it ends. This is always where it not, ends. Well, not always because, and this is kind of what I always think about with these Musk cycles we've gone through over the past couple of years is that, you know, yes, like he's outlandish and has these wild ideas and doesn't follow through on a lot of things, but he's still running SpaceX and Tesla and doing a pretty good job with those companies. And maybe he has some others on the way, Neuralink and... You know, there was this article in the New York Times about how, like, oh, it's such a big problem that Elon Musk runs Starlink because now the Ukrainians can only rely on him. And it's like if he didn't build Starlink, the, the Ukrainians wouldn't have this service. So what are we complaining about here? So I always wonder with these type of situations, is it is it is this part of this this whole personality part of what enabled Elon to sort of press the limits and think about things that he wouldn't that, that most entrepreneurs or, and governments, for that matter, wouldn't otherwise and b like the second side of this is is some of the things that we're seeing with him and twitter the same stuff that got him to where he is or is it sort of that that inflection point of like oh god now elon might be in trouble 
What do you think? No, I, I think it is exactly the same type of thing that got him to where it is because this, this cage match saga to me has always essentially been capital raising arbitrage for Elon Musk. It's he has been able to build. Okay. He has been able to build these businesses. Think about Tesla, its growth trajectory, it becoming at one point, you know, a trillion dollar company, him becoming at times the world's richest man are all like able to be done because of the narrative he has created around himself and the attention he commands. And I think that was his biggest insight is understanding that the more attention he's able to bring to himself and the more he can kind of just command the entire state of conversation in the world, that's what allows him to raise the money that he needs or run Tesla in the way he wants to run it or build a new factory and make heads of state want to work with him and give him all the incentives and subsidies possible. Again, like every head of state fawning over bringing Tesla to their country and bragging about when right. it does appear. That's okay, but all then because how of this cult of personality. And how is this cage match going to pay off for him then? Oh, I think, okay, where this all ends up, I'm not trying to predict just yet. But I think in terms of, uh, other than there won't be a cage match, right. I think, but it, he's had so many of these moments. I think this is just... He, you know, his profile only continues to grow, but this is the way he's been acting ever since. Again, for me, and I've I've written about this many times, I was a big Elon Musk fanboy in the early days of, or call it the middle days of Tesla in the early 2010s. It was really the 420 tweet back, it was at 2018, when he said he was going to take Tesla private and starting to see just how reckless a lot of the behavior was. And it was, and again, think about that. Again, like tweeting that he's going to take the company private, getting a slap on the hand from the SEC, and then bringing more attention to himself, and then turning Tesla into a trillion dollar company based on just an insane stock valuation. It's like he has been able to do all of that over and over again. So the cage match, it's a bet for him, I'm sure, that right. maybe I'll get away with uh, get get away with it again. Okay, but here's the question then. If this is the same behavior that's enabled him to build, which I think what I think most people would agree are pretty impressive companies, then what's the problem? He's just doing it again. I oh, because it's going to run out at some point. At but some it, I mean, point, come on, this at some runs point, out. Come on. This is no, no, know, I five mean, years I, again, running yeah. since the 420 tweet, and, Tesla and Sp- Tesla's building more cars than ever before. SpaceX has been able to like basically own low-Earth orbit and get those uh, Starlink satellites in. So these, so with this... And I'm just kind of talking it out with you, right? I want yeah, to sort yeah, of yeah, understand, yeah, yeah. but with all this attention, he's actually been able to use that for good. So it's it's sort of like, is this is this really a problem? No, I I think we're going to see again the idea of like the narrative SpaceX Tesla shooting rockets to Mars and uh, and you know electrifying the entire motor vehicle industry. That shine, already you're starting to see cracks. I remember I was reading, I think it was Felix Salmon had a piece recently around a lot of the new data and narratives that are coming out around, was Tesla or has it been overall a net positive for electrification of the automotive industry? We take that as an unadulterated truth, right? Like everyone's like, yeah, Tesla, without it, nothing happens. But could hybrids have been 
the, a better way to approach this? Could smaller vehicles and making range the central part of the entire discussion has distracted us and potentially made us build batteries that aren't the optimal way and build transportation infrastructure that isn't the optimal one? So I think there's going to be a lot more questioning of that narrative because it's that narrative and that unquestioning acceptance of it has allowed him to build these companies in that way. And I think, I mean, I don't want to call the turning point ever with Elon Musk because you never know. But again, the cage match, I think, is exposing that kind of behavior to more and more people in more and more ways. Well, I think we'll just have to to wait and see on this one. I mean, I think that Elon, this this entire chapter has not been, let's say, impressive. But if it's going to take the same path that it's taken with Tesla and SpaceX, and he's just going to command more capital to build more companies. Actually, you know, he's figured out the system well. And oh, he has. Over the last four to five years, he figured out the system better than anyone else. I, I definitely agree with that. And, and the person who's going to, speaking of figure out the system, right, the person who's going to go and write a biography of him is Walt, none other than Walter Isaacson, he of the Steve Jobs biography. And it has been interesting watching Walter Isaacson, who's this like luminary author, go out and speak about Elon during this entire process because he's almost become, he has become Elon's de facto PR person. Elon doesn't, you know, have a lot of or any public relations uh, officials, pretty much. I mean, there are there is one guy at Twitter who keeps emailing out the the stuff from Linda Yaccarino. So I'm thinking like, okay, maybe PR and function, if not in name. But Elon doesn't really use PR people, but Walter Isaacson has effectively been functioning as that person. And he did tweet out the private messages between Musk and Zuckerberg about the fight and uh, in a way that served Musk's interests. There's, there was some debate about that, right, where people were like, well, he should not have um, t- you know, tweeted those or shared those texts. And I'm like, come on, you're, not a, you're a reporter. You share the text with like the appropriate context. But just the total tone of Isaacson towards Musk has been that of, of as publicist. And this book that he has that's going to come out about Elon, which is coming out in about a month, might put his. I mean, it might put his credibility on the line. Yeah, I think I really am curious how his how this plays out for Walter Isaacson's legacy as a venerated biographer. Like, I mean, the idea that. Uh, Again, 30 days must feel like an eternity for Walter Isaacson right now because what will Elon Musk do in those within those 30 days and what could that mean for when that book comes out and it's glowing and it's praising and it's saying that this is... And, and again, if anyone who's read the biographies of Steve Jobs or Leonardo da Vinci, which are excellent, they, again, they paint a very, very clear picture of people who are changing the world for good and might be a little complex, but overall, as you said, it's not quite fawning, but it's certainly complimentary, let's say. And and what Elon Musk does before that, I'm very curious to see. But then also, as you said, again, for listeners, Walter Isaacson tweeted, the text messages between Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg where he's talking about, you know, let's have a cage match practice at your house or something, or I don't know exactly what which ones they were, but he is put, mixing himself in this, whether he wants to or not. So to me, I don't think there's any kind of like journalistic duty to tweet the text messages. I think he's doing that as, as you said, more on the publicist side. I don't know, like, would you prefer reporters who had text between Zuckerberg and 
Musk or powerful people in the tech industry keep those close to the vest as opposed to share them to the public. I mean, I know if I got a hold of those text messages, I'm tweeting those immediately. Wait, but that that's any any source, right? That's someone feeds you some bit of information. Why are they doing it? And should I share it or should I not? So it's the context around it. Yeah, it's the context. And clearly Elon Musk is doing that to jab Mark Zuckerberg and using Walter Isaacson as his vessel to jab jab Mark Zuckerberg. So... So I think he has to be more cognizant of that. He spent however many hours and days and months with Elon Musk. Right. He's got to know him a little better than that. I don't know. I would definitely be be sharing those messages and with maybe <laughs> with the context, like, all right, this this is what is going on here. But but it is interesting when we talk a little bit about like you know is is Isaacson going to write this book that makes people you know that, that's effusive about Musk? And it's like, well, what do people want to read? in some ways, right? Like is a book that's balanced or a book that's like a total hagiography of Elon Musk going to sell better and going to be appreciated by the public more. And it almost seems as if the public would rather read a book that's almost entirely positive about a business hero. Like, you know, however much criticism we have of the media, like actually readers, they kind of want to read the book that like, ah, this person, you know, faced tough circumstances and look at what all the good they did in the world. You know, it's, one of the categories of books that you want to write is, you know, you want to have something that's aspirational to the reader that's going to make them part with the 30 bucks. Yeah. So no, I'm curious what you think that, about that. That's exactly. And is Walter Isaacson functioning as a journalist here or a biographer who's trying to sell books? And clearly it'll be the latter. And yeah, I, I think both, that's... But, you know... Exactly, exactly. You could be both. And I think a lot of people are. But again, to, to, to write the bestsellers that are remembered... I mean, maybe that is the way, that is, I agree, that's what people want to read. And it's kind of interesting to be discussing this in the same week that Michael Lewis's great book called, or great in retrospect, who knows, book called The Blind Side, which is about, uh, a, you know, a boy who was adopted um, and went on to play football and the adopted family like raised him and it was this very sentimental, beautiful story. Um, and he went on to play for the Baltimore Ravens. And now he's come out and said, like, you know, they took him out of tough circumstances and the family now has uh, has tried to claim undue uh, control over his finances and rewards from the story due to a conservatorship versus a adoption. And it's like this Michael Lewis story, this beautiful thread that he's he's put together is starting to unravel. Um, and it just goes to show you, it's like, it's one of those things where I like I do wonder if Michael Lewis actually and many authors just you know did he actually want to find the real story or was he content telling the story that was you know almost I think they call it in the business too good to check it's very interesting Yeah I think it it's tough because that's where kind of like uh the things that border between fiction and non-fictional narrative it's tough because like the blind side, and and I say this I am a huge fan of Michael Lewis, and I really hope like more of this does not come to light. And and it was a troubling one because again the uh, the football player uh, Michael Oher, I believe Michael he had, uh, yeah, or yeah, he. I mean, and it's kind of sad too. Again, he came out and has said the family tried to control his finances, but also that the movie and its portrayal while he was in the NFL actually negatively impacted him because it you know portrayed him and exaggerated to not to be it yeah. exaggerated his like it, it mental capacities and of course on the football field that'll be 
something that's held against you and that it's it's kind of like like it's sad that and, and i loved the movie i loved the book but remembering that it, it's happening while he is alive and while he's playing and I know. and uh yeah and it's a beautiful story but a lot of the times the story yeah is it's yeah go ahead it's too too good to check he came into the nfl and there were players that were wondering whether he could read the playbook because of the way that this movie portrayed him as this like you know guy who had been just sort of i mean he he's like remember like i was an all-american before i came into the nfl but because of this the way that this story was told and again i think that there's a commercial aspect to it you know that's how his, it impacted his real life so however the one one thing i can say again liars poker having worked on a trading floor for eight years not during that time in the 80s with Solomon Brothers is feels and is as real as it can get about uh about capturing an industry and an environment yeah look we're not going to come on here and say that Michael Lewis and Walter Isaacson are you know amateurs like they obviously have skill and talent but it is kind of interesting in terms of the commercialization and the, the way that these things are shaped you know, the directions that the work go. And part of that's writer, part of that story, but part of that is also audience, which doesn't get talked about very often. Speaking yeah, of... But, yeah, oh, go ahead. Sorry, but one thing on that, though, I think is interesting is it's also a reminder, and again, the, the positive side of whether it's social media, whether it's just more people have a voice right now, is in the past, it's very likely that, you know, the that book is written... And then Michael Ower's narrative never really makes it out into the world. Um, obviously, his wasn't out from like a viral tweet or anything like that. But it, you do feel there is more accountability in general around these kind of things versus in the past. And I think that's a good thing. Yeah, I agree. And a lot of it happens on podcasts. I mean, I was watching yes. <laughs> or on a podcast. So we're doing good for the world, Ron John, is we're what I'm trying good. to say. We're doing good for the world. There's, speaking of doing good for the world, Goldman Sachs. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. But, you know... They're an interesting institution, and uh, in the run-up to this week's show, they have a very interesting partnership with Apple. They've really been trying to make ways into uh, the consumer world, and in the run-up to this show, you dropped like a few links in our... We have this uh, collaborative doc that we like trying to drop stories in through the week to talk about them on this show, and you had dropped like a couple Goldman uh, links, and I was like... I don't know, it's a little far afield. They do have that Apple partnership. But as I got deeper into the story, I was like, oh yeah, this is definitely you know, something that we need to talk about on the podcast. So not only is their uh, partnership with Apple starting to struggle, but uh, their CEO, David Solomon, has, uh, has really come under fire inside the company. And it is kind of interesting as to like, why the folks at Goldman don't like him. It's not necessarily performance, but it's more just like his work on their uh, reputation. I'm just going to tee you up here, Ranjan. What about the Goldman news? And, uh, you know, do you find it interesting? And um, how do you think we should view its push into the consumer world, given that its program with Apple is so important, yet they've lost a lot of money there? Yeah, so, okay, so to step back... Remembering why and when Goldman Sachs got into consumer banking, I think is important here because in 2016, they launched Marcus, 
which is the named after the founder, Marcus Goldman. And this was like the first really consumer facing product. This is the idea that Goldman Sachs before only for the ultra wealthy and exclusive and only for, you know, Wall Street firms and banking and trading suddenly is going to try to appeal to at least some larger portion of the entire like consumer industry. And it was it was at a time again, remember, fintech is probably like the promise of fintech mid 2010s is it's going to change everything. It's going to be like in a revolutionary business. Banking will change. So consumer banking will change. It's a wide open market. So they should get into it. It even from like a standpoint of recruiting engineering talent to have these kind of like really digital first offerings. It was part of it. This is when they were losing lots and lots of talent to investment, uh, sorry, to big tech companies and wanting to make themselves appear more to be more technology forward. So, so there's so many different elements. Then you throw in the, the Apple card, which I'm assuming the discussions would have started around that time as well. Um, you know, like having such a public facing partnership, having your logo imprinted on a credit card that's going to be in the wallet of probably a pretty good consumer profile for you. Again, still tech forward, like probably good credit or reasonable credit. So so that's like, and it started under Lloyd Blankfein. Then David Solomon comes in and makes it really one of his kind of marquee strategic efforts. And he's like, we are going to, consumer is going to be an area of growth. And sorry, and then another area I'd forgotten is this is also when, because of uh, post-financial crisis regulatory reasons, banking, especially uh, trading within an investment bank, starts to feel like it might become a little more restrained in terms of profit potential. So so where do you find growth? It's going to be in consumer and kind of digital forward consumer offerings. So all this is happening. And basically, like a lot, I think it's interesting how it reflects the lost promise of a lot of other fintech offerings and companies and unicorns it's similar they they the same growing pains the same inability to actually realize whatever potential was sold in the mid 2010s then you have from like a pure loan book standing they've been losing a ton of money on the loans that they actually underwrote on the consumer side and the credit that they issued so all of this is happening but why this story gets even better is you have david solomon you know, as the face of this push, that he is the one. And for those unfamiliar, D- David Solomon has a DJ name, D Soul. Um, he's he flies around. He DJs. I think at the Chainsmokers concert during COVID was one of the one of one of the big and most controversial ones. But he has he's created this persona for him in front of everyone, totally publicly. And it's been okay, but it's one of those that when it's working, and that's good for you, the moment any kind of hiccup comes around, you can imagine everyone is going to be coming for you. And that's what we started to see. There was an insane profile in New York Magazine I recommend everyone reads. It's like, it's a long one, but it's so good. And you can see it happening that all these kind of intersecting trends are coming together right now. Again, like the lost promise of fintech, People who are executives who over the last few years might have kind of gone a little too far on the 
personal branding and promotion and being the cool guy side and now it needing to be just getting back to business. So I think this, this is one definitely to watch. Right. So just going over the story. So they basically needed to get into consumer stuff because profits on investment banking side might not have uh, been what they would have been pre-regulation. And they also saw an opportunity with fintech like thinking about like maybe like a SoFi as a competition. So that's why they decided to expand into consumer. Yeah, exactly. Think SoFi, Betterment, Wealthfront, that's one entire area. So imagine- But why did they need that though? That's the thing. Like they are like this prestigious investment bank. They have all the big clients. They probably could still make a ton of money. Like even the stories talk about how like Goldman can make money when it needs to make money. No, but so what? What why, is the why? Do, why does a luxury it? fashion house ever have like a more mass market sub brand? Right, that's right? true. But it's not working out for them, though. So, what do you think? What do you think has been the cause for them? I mean, they've lost a billion dollars on the Apple Card alone. Yeah, no, no. I th- again, I think it's not working out. But but if you go back to 2016 or probably 2014 when you can imagine they would have been pitching this strategically internally. Oh, this would have been the greatest pitch deck in the Mm -hmm. world for a senior executive who wants to kind of move their way up and impress people. And then David, even Lloyd Blankfein at the time, and then David Solomon, like this, it's a dream pitch, right? It just doesn't quite work out. And then you throw in, the personal side of jet setting around and DJing with the chain smokers. It's not only the and- DJing, he's just a jerk internally, according to this profile. I mean, there was this one line that I pulled out where he didn't like what was happening in, with you know some of his employees. And he goes, I can't wait for the markets to turn so I can start firing you. And it's like, yeah, I guess that's the personality of finance in some ways. Not all finance houses, but Goldman in particular seems like one where that's tolerated. Um, and yeah, I guess there's there's blowback. So so do you think that the things that have caused the blowback have been that like fintech is harder than they expected and then the market did turn? Yeah, ex- I think it's bo- exactly those two things. Fintech is harder than expected and the market turned. And I think and and actually on the subject of he's just kind of a jerk. I kind of I kind of smiled when I was reading a lot of the the kind of over-the-top comments made by him or things that are being attributed to him about being a bit abrasive, let's say, is because, I mean, this is investment banking. This is Wall Street. This is like... That's that just stuff, the culture? That stuff feels... Uh, it's been, uh, you know, uh, over a decade that I have not been directly working in it, but, like, I mean, that stuff seems pretty tame or peaceful compared to a lot of things you would see to, but but it's wait a what did you see are you able to talk about it oh no i mean just being berated in front of people and yelled at or that happened to I you mean, oh yeah yeah wow. that's, that's easy yeah in front of the whole floor people your boss screaming at you you're uh, then those are the bad ones there's good ones too mm-hmm. so i i one of my bosses really loved them and uh, still talk to them regularly now. But that stuff, it's pretty. It was, it was honestly very normal in in a weird way, like to talk about. It. And again, twenty twenty three trading floor culture. I imagine it's a bit difficult, uh, different now. But but I think on that side. But but again, and David Solomon is kind of like falling into 
the trap of being allowed to be an asshole for a bit, mm-hmm. you're allowed to until you stop performing. Right. And then the knives come out and you but can see But it's not like again. being a nice guy would, you know... Had, would have saved him on yes, this one Obviously anyways. just the numbers. But the interesting thing is, I mean, I think it's worth talking about this Apple card in particular. So I'm curious why you think they've lost so much money on it. I mean, more than a billion dollars. And then there was another like really interesting part of the story where they talk about like um, who their customers are now. So they went from like the highest end type customers. Um, and this is, uh, you know, what's happened recently talking about what went wrong straight from the New York mag story. Rising interest rates caused defaults on Apple cards to spike more than a quarter of its credit card borrowers had FICO scores under 660. Most of its personal loan customers were using the money to pay down other debt. Goldman Sachs suddenly had millions of customers who not only weren't as rich as the bank's long-time, long-time clients, but were struggling to make ends meet. And I think that's sort of the crux of it, right? It just like talks exactly about how tough it is for a long-time bank to come in and start to take on some of like the you know down-the-line risk that fintech companies are willing to take on to grow. Yeah, it, so as you said, it's actually estimated one to three billion dollars over the life of the partnership. Um, it's just it's bad issuance of credit. Essentially, it's like mm-hmm. it's not it's not. And, and I could also I could almost imagine because remember in the mid 2010s, like there was that promise that you should be able to using data evaluation like. Uh, understand a credit score and a credit worthiness of an individual consumer at a far more granular level than a FICO score. Like, you know, using, there's even stuff I remember where it was like using social media, we will be able to issue credit right. based on, uh, on like who someone is and what they're talking about. And, you know, like imagine you're like, posting about your vacation somewhere and that makes you seem more wealthy so that's going to give you more credit access to credit so so there there is a lot of promise around being able to issue credit more rapidly to a wider uh, group of customers but they did not execute well i think that was the actual quote i read in one of the articles where it was we did not execute well Right. And I think uh, they're they're paying for it now. And now they're thinking about passing that partnership on to American Express. So quite interesting. All right. Let's take a break. Come back. Talk a little bit about the stu- these new studies about social media. Ranjan Roy is here with us back from Taiwan off of vacation. And now uh, it's time for us to get back into the swing of things. So thanks, everybody, who've been, who's uh, been listening here. And uh, we'll be back after this with a discussion of those two topics. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tober Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. 
I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. And so... We had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. And we're back here on Big Technology Podcast. Ranjan Roy is back from vacation. We're going to talk a little bit in this section about what he saw in Taiwan. Uh, actually, maybe we can just start with that. Ranjan, do you have any like reflections of, of um, like the Taiwanese tech culture, anything that you saw just by osmosis there. And then we can move on to these interesting studies about social media algorithms. Yeah, the 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 first one, I have two that like really stuck out. First one, a lot of places did not take credit cards as in Visa or Amex, Visa, MasterCard or Amex, but it wasn't cash. It was all line pay, not mm. WeChat pay, but line for those unfamiliar, another messaging app messaging app slash super app that Elon Musk wants to create. And for me, it was, it was pretty fascinating to watch because everything, even like, like roadside vendors and stuff, everyone took line pay, uh, you know, like everyone, the call to action is connect with us online. So seeing the behavior of the super app in, mm -hmm. you know, in person. Did and, it make and, you have more faith in Elon's plan? <laughs> um, no. Okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I tried. Yeah. <laughs> um, the, the other one, this was one of my favorite. So in terms of delivery, they had something called Lala Move, which apparently is in the Philippines and Southeast Asia, East Asia. And so we were, we were out at dinner and with a, one of my wife's friends and his wife was at home. So they literally order food to go. And then you can order, it's essentially a courier service, mm -hmm. but it's very popular. So rather than having direct relationships with the restaurant even necessarily, or the restaurant isn't even on the platform, but just calls couriers. So people, because I believe, I mean, it was explained to me again, because there is an abundance of lower cost labor and people, mm -hmm. and you can even order like on a moped, on a car, on really? a truck hmm. so yeah so so the whole delivery infrastructure it, it's like and it's something that in the u.s i never think about and i know i mean uber had has or had uber courier like moving stuff around outside of the confines of a food delivery app or a car service but actually being able to just have someone move around something for you instantly. It was something I saw over and over again that everyone was using this Lala move. Wow, that's interesting. Could that ever work in the US? I think Or in so. Europe? I, I don't know. I mean, again, Uber, I know they had the courier service. It, it Couriers, I've always still thought of more for like work mm -hmm. when someone had like some document that has to move around or some box that has to go from one place to another immediately. But But it could make sense. Again, you're... 
your the restaurant rather than necessarily contracting to a food delivery startup but just that same startup that brought them their like you know from a vendor or supplier stuff in the morning could also be delivering stuff to customers when it works out yeah i was desperately looking for one of those services in new york recently where i had like left my car in a at a mechanic in long island it was old folks but it died and i was uh, i sold it to like one of those like parts for hire people and um, the repair people, because I didn't have any more repairs, just stopped picking up the phone. And I had to leave the title in the car before the night before the repair people came came in. So I ended up going on my own, you know, going out there on my own, taking the plates off, leaving the title in the um, in the driver's seat. And it was like 10 p.m. It was like probably the night before I flew to San Francisco. And because they were not ready for me because they stopped answering my answering my calls um and i needed to get that done that night i'm i'm in the parking lot doing the thing and they called the cops like they were monitoring it like <laughs> remotely i'm like trying to get this car off my hands and next thing i know there's like some some speaker saying you are trespassing the police have been called i'm like oh this is my car so, so, so hold on. So just to confirm, you would like to pass that off to no, to only to for a, the first half of the story to a courier. Well, no, yeah, but yeah. you know what I think? Because I could only get out there at night. But if I were to be able to send a courier during the day, um, there wouldn't have been a problem. There, so. Okay, no, no, that's fair. And mm-hmm. actually, yeah, that exactly. Here is a title to the car. Go yeah, and just go drop put it, it off. In the car. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, I guess paid a lot of money for that also because like. You know, I mean, it just had to be done in the moment and it would have saved me a drive out to Long Island to do it. So I guess. Yeah. I mean, I guess I had to drive out to Long Island, almost got arrested for taking the plates off my own trespassing, which would have been really awful. So (laughs) social media algorithms, social media algorithms, (laughs) social media algorithms are having their moment in the sun. Recently, there have been four academic institutions that studied the role of social media algorithms and features of the feed, uh, and they published their findings in late July, and um, and they've continued to be discussed because they're actually like fairly large studies, um, and they're covered in places like the New York Times. I don't know. I didn't make too much about them because they came off of like it wasn't like universal access to Facebook. It was just like Facebook handed over the data. But some of their uh, their conclusions have been quite interesting, including that um, that when you were to use a plain reverse chronological feed versus an algorithm, it doesn't increase polarization, um, among many other things. Uh, and I'm curious, like it seemed overwhelmingly positive for, for Facebook and companies that use algorithms to figure, to filter news. But I was also just like, uh, kind of caveat here, right? Cause look at the source. What was your perspective on, on these studies? What did you learn? Uh, two things. One, definitely caveat here because the the studies were funded by Facebook. Uh, in 2019, they'd committed $20 million to uh, work with the NORC at the University of Chicago, nonpartisan research organization. Um, but they did not pay the researchers directly, but they did fund the overall research. But And they also had control to exactly what access uh, what data the researchers had access to. So again, yeah, this is still essentially a Facebook study that ends up, at least from a PR standpoint, they leaned heavily into the idea that our algorithms do not affect polarization at all, and this proves everything. 
I disagree with that. And I, I dug into this a lot because actually one of the things I strongly believe in, I remember a year, a couple of years ago in like 2019, one of the earliest margins post was my five point plan to fix social media. Mm -hmm. And one of them, and it's number one, Elon Musk has to just buy Twitter. Is that on the, that was it. It was what I said from the beginning. Well done. And and Mark Zuckerberg needs to to launch threads. It needs to launch threads. Very precious. We're there. Nailed it. Fixed. Um, so, so to me, the idea of a reverse chronological feed instead of an algorithm, I think is one of the most important things that needs to be available. It needs to be very potentially like my, I had half joked, but you, the default should be reverse chronological. And if you want to opt into algorithms, you should have like a warning label, like a pack of cigarettes is what I've said. Mm-hmm. Is that the idea is like, you just have to be made aware that what is being fed to you in an algorithm is going to be biased towards the more extreme because that's how algorithms work. This study, and we can definitely get more into that. And I think TikTok became this kind of like logical endpoint of what a pure algorithm looks, algorithmic content looks like when there's no social graph, no anything else. So the study found that when you actually go into a reverse chronological feed, that supposedly it does not add to polarization. In fact, it it shows you less political content is what the study found. The thing that was interesting to me, but it also is it also found that it shows you less extreme content, which is right. obvious. Makes we sense. all know the more viral something is, the more an algorithm will select and show it. It's not like that's the thing for me around a lot of this is it's not uh, you know, rocket science. It's, of course, things that are viral or pushed by an algorithm are going to be more extreme. So so to me, Facebook clearly, and like Nick Clegg was everywhere saying this shows that we did not actually, you know, increase uh, polarization during the election, but it took, a, it took like a very small portion of time right before, one month before the November 2020 election, when feeds are very heavily political anyways, and then still found that a reverse chronological feed will show you less extreme content. It's just worse though. Like even I think about threads, like, uh, you know, I'm on the for you and there's also, they just released the following tab a few weeks ago and I never want the Oh, it's stuff. terrible. It's yeah, terrible. It's and here's why that's so your plan to is to just break social media. I mean, there's got to be yes. some algorithmic filtering. No, no, so it, it has to be a rec. So two things I, I still believe, but it, no, and don't get me wrong. I say this not necessarily tongue in cheek. It would definitely hamper or not maybe destroy a lot of businesses as TikTok would definitely be the most vulnerable. And actually, in Europe, TikTok is now going to have to show, as part of the European Digital Services Act, a non-algorithmic option. So they've already announced what they're going to do is instead of, but remember, it doesn't have to just be follower-based, which mm. is threads. The problem is their reverse chronological feed is only followers, right? It's Or sorry, the, the and call it not reverse chronological, but the non-algorithmic feed is followers. I will say I went on there the other day. No one I know has threaded in days. I think I then I saw when was your last thread? Maybe I, like I can't recall, but 
not six I, days ago. No, eight definitely. Days ago. No, come on. Are you I, doing it just so you can come on this podcast and tell me that <laughs> you're still threading? That is the number one reason, but <laughs> I have a very, I, well, I think I used to have an active community on thread. No, my threaded five days ago. Oh my God. Yeah. I really fell off the wagon. Fell off the wagon on threads. Um, start threading again, man. No, I on. think that it seems like that network is going to go through a very long struggle um, and may never actually get back to what it was that first that first week. It feels dead right now. I'm just going to say it. it all right, I'm admitting you. it. Thank you. Thank you. Another thing it, I got to admit, by the way, I'm going to get back to this algorithm thing, is uh, this week a self-driving cruise uh, drove directly into wet concrete in San Francisco. This is from the New York Times. On Tuesday in San Francisco, a driverless car somehow drove into a city paving project and got stuck in wet concrete. Uh, The mishap involved the cruise vehicle. According to city officials, who said it was not clear how this car ended up in the concrete. I know I've been very effusive on self-driving cars. I'm not going to be one-sided about it like Wilder Isaacson will be about Elon (laughs) Musk. I admit it ain't perfect yet. Okay, just got to say that. I feel like just for, for... you know, full disclosure reasons. Yes, these cars do sometimes drive into the concrete. But but back to our story about the wet wet concrete. Wet concrete. It was wet, wet paper. They said they, they had like recovered the car and it wasn't clear like what what do they leave the wheels in there? They have to pay anyway to figure that out. But but going back to our discussion of algorithms, I think the thing that's been most interesting about this that's really picked up speed, whether it's Facebook itself, whether it's uh Musk inside Twitter or even advocates like Julia Agwin, who who wrote about it this week, is that there's budding momentum for people to be able to sort of choose their own algorithm. As opposed to just go reverse cron or algorithm, you should be able to choose a flavor of your algorithm. You could choose like heavily filtered, lightly filtered, outrage algorithm, chill algorithm, funny algorithm, and just allow that to, to filter your feed based off of your preferences. I think we're eventually going to get there. It seems like that is definitely like the next stage of social media is just like sort of pick your flavor and then run with it. And I'm curious if you think that, you know, you pointed out that article to me, the Julia one. Um, is that like the the ideal and most pragmatic outcome in one? Yeah, I really think and I hope that's where we move to. Because again, when I'm saying reverse chronological should be the default, I'm not saying that should be the only option. I'm saying that the least extreme and outrageous one should be where everyone starts. And then you should be able to go where you want to or like like rather than passively being fed and told what to look at you should have to define and do a little bit of work for yourself and the problem is that friction will obviously change the user growth and like engagement for any platform right so obviously and I'm not saying from a business standpoint it's the best way to approach this but from an actual informational health standpoint like having to just say, this is what I want to do. So if you want to get that shit outrageous content, <laughs> you ha- you should have that right. You should have to click, this is yeah. what I want. That's my threads. I, That's yeah. why I died. It was <laughs> yeah. just too crazy for me. <laughs> Give me the absolute craziest stuff out there. I want only lies, only lies. And then uh, I should be able to choose that, but I should have to choose that and not just be fed it because of what I've been profiled at or what I'm clicking on. Love that. All right, Ron John. Feels good to be back. Feels good to be back. We got a lot to talk about next week. We're going to have a whole segment on whether generative AI is a dud. And speaking of which, Colin Murdoch, the chief business officer 
of DeepMind, who does not believe it's a dud, is going to be on the podcast on Wednesday to talk a little bit about Google's efforts in this area. So we managed to do a whole show without any Gen AI this week. I think that's great. And we'll get back to it next week, really interrogating you know, how far it's come and what the opportunity is and where it lacks, uh, because there have been you know, a couple months in, or almost a year in now some areas that have definitely emerged and some concerns that have definitely emerged amid the hype. So we will talk about that then. Ranjan, welkom back. Right, it's really fun to have you here. Generative AI. Yeah, and more. Um, and maybe maybe another Long Island uh, trespassing story. Well, I'm in Seattle now, so... Okay, so that's where the trespassing will take place. I'm planning to do zero crimes for the next week or so as I make my way back to San Francisco and then eventually to New York. But no promises, so if... Uh, if I end up taking the plates off another car, it ain't going to be for for <laughs> for good reasons, folks. That I promise you. But I will not be doing that. I left my screwdriver back in the apartment. Thank you, Ron good, John. Good thanks, every, thanks everybody for listening. Uh, pleasure to have you back, Ron John. We'll be doing this again every week with our Friday news recap show, and then tune in on Wednesdays for the flagship interview show. Again, Colin Murdoch from DeepMind. Our first DeepMind interview yet is going to be on Wednesday. Don't miss it. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We will see you next time on Big Technology Podcast.